Weekend Variety. Wireless. Jesus, make it stop is the title we've given to the series with Glenn Harper, military historian from Massey University. Man, he's been good, really good. I've so appreciated what he's been able to do for us, walking us through the last weeks of World War I towards Armistice. Tomorrow night, the final instalment, because it is 100 years ago, because we're fascinated with round numbers, but uh, either way, it doesn't really matter, does it? Uh, worth commemorating what a thing World War One was. It really did shape the rest of the 20th century and still echoes today. The Germans were soundly beaten in World War One. They were falling apart and yet this happened. They actually are welcomed back by their own government who treats them as if they are a victorious army and actually allows them to have a victory parade in November 1918 of all things. Uh, where their Chancellor actually tells them, welcome back you who return undefeated from the field of battle. So uh, little wonder that the hostility is reserved for those who actually made the peace and signed the armistice and all those left wing elements that were blamed for uh, Germany's defeat. Yeah, so guess who uh, felt particularly embittered by this capitulation, seemingly? Uh, and Adolf Hitler, who was recovering from a gas attack on Armistice Day a hundred years ago. He wouldn't let this broken bottle sit in his guts without some sort of vengeance. And I think we know what happened after that. Jesus, make it stop. It's going to be 10.30 tomorrow night because that's how we can fit a big fat one in. Um, also tomorrow night, special guest Brian Cox, physicist and television personality, I suppose you could say. He's been on everything from QI to his own brilliant documentaries on space and physics and stuff. Science is a, as a profession, if you're a research scientist, it's pretty much been wrong all the time. And then just now and again, it turns out that you're not wrong and you're delighted. He's a lovely guy. I'll go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. I make no apologies for encouraging you to if you can because there are supplementary videos and things you can... We've got the video up of Brian Cox having the piss taken out of him exquisitely by Philomena Kunk and Barry Shitpiece. That's their names. Don't come crying to me. Uh, he'll be our guest tomorrow evening after Skeptical Thoughts. Susie Wilds is back from a trip overseas, so it'll be a show-and-tell, maybe a slideshow. When was the last time you had a slideshow? Gosh, I love a slideshow. They're just marvellous things. There's just something quite theatrical and lovely about it. All righty, uh, next up, folks, we're going to uh, the movies with James Crute. Oh, my goodness, a new Peter Jackson thing, and it looks stunning. Learn all about it after the break. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute, an apt thing to be having a look at this week uh, in the memory, uh, commemorating um, men who fought on the Western Front. And this is a Peter Jackson magic thing, magic trick, isn't it? 
It is a magic trick. Look, it's the first documentary that he's directed since a little one called Forgotten Silver. Oh. Remember the impact that that had, Graham? Oh, but <laughs> this is... I've seen... That. Look, listeners, have a look at the trailer. It's very... Oh, oh, oh. Didn't think this was possible, but, man, he has turned a trick, hasn't he? He has indeed. I mean, he's managed to make colorization legit. You know, it's not like Ted Turner's colorized version. No, no. Um, look, what he's done is he's taken footage from the Imperial War Museum from 100 years ago. He's cleaned it up, used all the tricks that, uh, you know, modern-day cinema has, and he's really brought to life this amazing soldier's point of view of the conflict of the of the First World War on the Western Front. Yeah, using um, using the real footage. Yeah, so it's the real footage and the audio, of course, it would be silent real footage from that era. And so the audio comes courtesy of a, a BBC series that was done in the 1960s, which was essentially the recollections of more than 100 soldiers of their time there. Yeah. But B, he got lip readers yeah. to look at the footage and so that has provided the basis for, you know, basically some... Uh, dialogue work as background noise to give you a sense of, of, you know, a bit of atmosphere behind the scenes. Yeah, this is all the care and uh, scientific rigour and effort that NASA usually put in. Uh, we've got a little bit of Peter Jackson here uh, talking about it. He says... Hello. Hello. I'm really excited to talk to you about a new project I've been working on with 1418 Now and the Imperial War Museum. The Imperial War Museum approached me a couple of years ago... Um, and they asked me what could be done with their original First World War footage in a way, just to present it in a way that hadn't really been seen before. And I thought about all the digital technology that exists today um, and, and can we restore that footage and make it look new and make it look sharp and, uh, you know, in a way that goes way beyond what has ever been done before. So we did some tests and uh, the results were... I mean, they really surprised me. They, they were unbelievable. We can make this grainy, flickery kind of, you know, sped-up footage look like it was shot in the last week or two. It looks like it was shot with high-definition cameras. It's so sharp and clear now. And so we are making a film. And, and we're making a film not the usual film that you would expect on the First World War. We're making a, a, um, a, a film that... that shows this incredible footage in which the faces of the, of, the, of, the, of the men just jump out at you. It's the faces, it's the people that come to life in this film. It's the human beings that were actually there, that were thrust into this extraordinary situation that defined their lives in many cases. And we also, in accompanying these, these restored images, we have gone through about 600 hours of um, audio interviews with, with our veterans, you know, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. And we have... We've, we've, we've made a movie which is, is, to, is to show the experience of what it was like to fight in this war, not strategy battles, you know, not, we, we don't talk about any, any historical, you know, aspects of the war particularly, we just talk about the social experience of being in this war and the human experience of being in the war. And it's actually amazed me what some of these people, or what some of the veterans, I mean, their, their interviews I've never heard before, and, and they talk about it in a way that's surprising. We have a sort of a cliched version of the war, I guess. We, we now, a hundred years later, we have made up our own minds what, this, what the First World War was like. But I think it's going to be very surprising when you listen to the voices of the men that fought the war 
and were there and experienced it. They had to live it, what they had to eat, what they, how they slept at night, um, you know, how, how they coped with the fear. Um, and, you know, that combined with these incredibly sharp images is going to, I think, be quite a surprising film. Yeah, it's an amazing package. I really don't know how you could, how he did this, James. That's the imagery, first of all, it just leaps out, doesn't it? And it doesn't look as though it lacks integrity. It's not like you colorize, that'll do. No, and in fact, the way he's done it is very clever. It's very understated. It's ve in a way, it's very un, uh, you know, the Jackson who made Lord of the Rings and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so the colorization doesn't actually kick in until 25 minutes, and it's essentially the bit set in the trenches and in the war itself. So all the rest of it is kind of the sepia tone, black and white, you know, the cleaned up image. And of course, there's the, um, he's, he's done the one thing that of course annoys the heck out of people looking at footage from that era. He slowed it down Good. to a speed that's effective. Now, I, I know you've asked me about this before. I think it's something to do with the, the frame rate, the number of frames per second. Well, we'll put people in the picture of what we're talking about. When you see oldie film from Charlie the day... Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, yeah. Why is it sped up? I mean, it, it became a convention. You almost got used to it. But there's no rhyme or reason. Surely it's not beyond the realm of human adventure and ingenuity to make it the right speed. Yeah, of course, uh, people may remember a few years ago, Peter Jackson, of course, uh, famously brought out his first Hobbit. Uh, what was it, 48 frames per second or something oh, like yeah, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. To try and increase it. And it, was, it was kind of a complete disaster. And I know there were a couple of other um, filmmakers, most notably Ang Lee, who also, I think he came up with 120 or something wacky like that. And it's kind of gone back into its, you know, little, it's a bit early for us. Uh, pocket really, um, but uh, but you know that kind of idea, his ability to play with the speed of film has has you know really been one of the things that this has benefited from. I mean, really. But James, this, this why on really earth? It. James, why on earth would somebody in the day, 1910, showing a movie, um, it's sped up? Surely someone's going to say, why the hell's it sped up? Can you slow it down? Why why was it sped up in the day? Well, I'm unsure of what the projection uh, rates were. In those well, they days. make them so it's the right you speed. You know, there were 16, 16 RPM records in the old days, weren't there? Yeah, but they didn't go... It <laughs> didn't sound like the um, yeah, yeah. Elvin and the Chipmunks. I mean, and I'm, I'm clutching at straws in a way, but wasn't there a, conve wasn't there a convention or something whereby they didn't want it to be too realistic because they were freaking people out? Oh, Particularly in the early days, you remember things like where the Lumiere brothers were uh, accused of of frightening audiences because they had freight trains coming towards the uh, oh. screen and that sort of thing. So I speed so it you, up, make it look you, silly and unnatural. That's right. Oh God! Oh well, Peter Jackson's managed that's to fix good a this. Theory, isn't he? <laughs> and he's he's got he's in, magically I don't know how, but with one grunty bloody set of computers has filled in the frame rates in between, and it's just something else. These people are alive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's it. There is a certain kind of ethereal quality to them, which I guess is is almost in keeping, but just the whole attention to detail is quite amazing. Look, people are going to be able to view it from 
uh, tomorrow is in uh, Armistice Day itself. I oh, give us the name of this thing. We haven't given it its name. No, <laughs> it shall not grow old, it's called. Yeah. And it's going to be on, I think, most cinemas, a lot of cinemas around the country are playing it. Um, it's going to be up to three sessions a day. They're almost treating it like Anzac Day, so I don't believe there are any sessions before 1pm. Yep. There are going to be cinemas that are going to screen it after tomorrow as well, mm-hmm. um, probably for the next couple of weeks. Um, there are five cinemas around the country that are showing it in 3D. Um, a couple in Wellington, they're kind of the obvious ones, really, the, the Jackson Homes of the Embassy and the Roxy. I think there's one in Auckland, one in Christchurch, uh, no, none in Christchurch, uh, and I think it might be somewhere like Mochuaka and Howie or, or oh, bless. Haura, Haura, I think it was. Yeah, amazing. But, you know, 3D obviously adds that, that extra kind of thing, and that's the presentation that he designed it for originally. It's also screening in Britain this weekend as part of the Armistice Day. The BBC, as well as the Imperial War Museum, are the people behind it. And I guess... Ultimately, it's going to end up in schools, isn't it? It's yeah. going to replace Gallipoli, or I reckon it'll, it'll be the counterpoint to Peter Weir's Gallipoli as the new education tool for for kids about World War One. These are the real folk, though. I, I'm I'm still astounded. It's like a, watching a magic trick, isn't it? It's a marvelous thing. I now can't. the other the other have thing a look that... at the trailer and freak yourself out. Exactly. The other thing that's come up this week is the censor who watched it himself and came up with the slightly confusing RP-16 rating, but then again, any movie that depicts uh, one of the real-life conflicts ends up with one of these sort of ratings. So essentially what that means is people of all ages are allowed to go and see it, but if you're under 16, you have to take your parent or guardian. Oh. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I suppose so. It's uh... it's better. The Brits, the Brits, no one under 15 can see it. Now, I'm not sure how they're doing that in terms of the television version, but mm. they came up with that. And the Aussies have made it similar to ours, but for some reason they think their age level is 15 and not 16. Yeah. Well, this is real conflict that it's um, depicting. And life behind the, te- to the trenches. And, Absolutely. And real Soldiers people. Soldiers' eye view of the war. And the brilliant trick of getting the lip readers to find out what they said and the reenactment of the audio that you know it's convincing isn't it it is absolutely convincing and some of the insights quite brilliant i mean i don't want to give away too many tricks but there's a wonderful thing where one guy recalls that there was a part of a kilted brigade and they had to give one of their number a note to say that he wasn't allowed on the top of buses and stuff like that because he hadn't (laughs) been issued with any underpants (laughs) oh god bless the scots all right well i can't wait to see this thing in full do have a look at the trailer and just drool at the effect the amazing achievement that this is and all for the good and i don't think it's it's clunky i don't think it's disrespecting the original footage this is just because you can and massive effort has gone into it it's it's just a, a window that we never thought we'd have yeah exactly i think he set a potential template for how to deal with uh, you know, footage that's still around but in disarray, if you like. You know, before we lose this kind of thing, this is what we need to be looking at. And it'll be interesting to see whether any uh, organisations with similar Kiwi footage mm. go uh, come towards him and say, 
Can you do something similar for us? I would imagine there'd be quite a queue forming once they see this um, to do the same trick with whatever footage. Oh, boy. Anyway, okay, um, I'm impressed. James, thank you very much. We've got to go. We're, uh, well, we've got Max Cryer knocking at the door saying, can I come in, please? Uh, and a very interesting origin of the word guy. Oh. Just as in a bloke. All right. James Crute, thank you very, very much for that. And uh, Peter Jackson, thank you. The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort. Words Hello, Max. Good evening. And if you want to ask Max anything to do with the English language, words, their origin and stuff, uh, you can email from the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. should be easily indicated there. And on the Facebook page, you know, just yell out and I'll pass it on. A few have come through. And uh, Max has had his nose in the books. But before we address some of those questions, uh, our word of the week, polls. Well, it's been around, hasn't it? And so I thought we'd have a look at poll, which originates from a German word. P-O-L-L-S. We're not talking those people from Poland. No, we're not. Or the ones that are north and south. Or the ones that you go over in a poll vault with. Any of those. It's P-O-L-L, as in election situations. It originates from a German word, which dates back to the 1200s, the 1300s as well. And it had two rather weird meanings. One was a piece of fur from the head of an animal and that sort of faded from use. Or more commonly, the word pole bent the actual head. And that drifted into English, meaning head, and sometimes referring to the whole person, but generally just the head. So in the 1600s, it can be found for the first time recording the use pole to mean um, counting heads as in collecting votes. Huh. Because before the days of mass literacy and secret ballots, elections were usually carried out by counting the voters' heads. By 1900, the word poll had assumed the image of being a survey of public opinion, counting how many heads wanted situation A and how many heads wanted situation B. But by then, the word poll was referring to the number of votes rather than the number of heads. Although, when you think about it, the votes had to have a head attached mm. to them or they wouldn't have happened. Yeah, had time. So, with some variations, that's what the word poll has settled into and how it got there. But, curiously enough, the original meaning of poll, as in head, survives in two rather strange places. For instance, Graham, I'm sure you've occasionally heard the word polax, the term that somebody got polaxed. Yeah. It means they got a significant blow to the head. Yeah. The axe was aimed at the head. And curiously, this is even more curious, the other word that I'm sure you're familiar with is tadpoles. Yeah. Now, tad is the old word for toad. And because tadpoles have no limbs, they appear to be just a body made up of just a great big head. They're called tadpoles. They're the head of the toad. That's hilarious. And it's true, and that's what we call a tadpole. A tadpole. So a tadpole is the same word as you going to the booth and casting your vote. So tad comes from toad. 
No, 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 Tad comes from toad, yes, and pole comes from head. There we go. It's another one of those words that you say, you know what it means. It's never given the slightest piece of attention as to what we're actually saying. If you picture a tadpole, you see it's got no feet or so no sort of trunk. Not for a while, anyway. (laughs) Not not while it's a tadpole. Fascinating Uh, things. uh, Did you keep tadpoles and grow them into frogs as a kid at any stage? I didn't have to because where I was a kid, there were tadpoles all by themselves growing. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Oh, fascinating thing. So there we have poll. All right, thank you, Max. Now, to your questions. Somebody has asked, well, this is an interesting one. We kind of know what it means, but why do we say it? Another one of these situations, a stepchild or a stepfather, stepmother. What are we stepping with? What is the step? Before I begin, um, tell me your opinion. Do you hear that expression very much lately? Not so much now no, that you bring so it up. Much. Well, uh, that's why, because my introduction to the subject is is a sort of social observation which goes like this. I think the terminology stepchild, stepmother, stepfather is now very rarely heard, even referring upwards to a new parent or stepfather or stepmother, um, because over the last 50 years an enormous change has taken place concerning the acceptance of relationships, plus changes in the language describing them. Not long ago it was considered antisocial, anti-religious and verging on anti-legal for a couple to live together without being married. And any children thereof were called illegitimate, which is a word you won't have heard for a long time. Bastards. Oh, bastards. But the gradual acceptance of partnerships with no marriage certificates, plus partnerships of the same gender with a marriage certificate, has effected major changes in the language, in terminology. The term wife can now mean the female partner of another female in a relationship, either legal or not. And similarly, husband can now refer to both men in a stable relationship, especially if it's been legalised. So, if an unmarried couple with children separate, and the one with whom the children remain, the, the mother or the father, remain, takes a new partner, it's not at all clear that the word stepfather or stepchildren would apply. Because... The question that came in actually was, why are they called stepfather, stepmother? And the reason for that, the word step originated from an ancient word meaning bereaved. So several hundred years back, within family relationships, if a widowed parent with children later remarried and the children are not genetically related to the new spouse, the surviving parent's new legal new legal partner and the children are now in a familiar family design because of a bereavement. Someone had died. Um, The death of one parent has brought this about, hence the word step, indicating relationships which are legally acknowledged but have come come across because somebody's died. Now, over time, this use of the word step completely lost its relationship with um, bereavement, but the word remained in use to describe the new relationship now for some what about the i think the brady bunch did they ever say stepfather i don't think they did there were plenty of opportunities to use it i don't, I don't think i can't remember them ever doing I don't using recall, the word no. step yeah 
Uh, well, of course, that would have been... Was it five girls and four yeah. girls and four boys? American terminology, it may have differed in... That. That's quite a long time ago, too, isn't it? Yeah, I know, but it might have been the genesis of not using step. Well, um, I can't put a date on it, but I'm just sort of, sort of answering the Is question. Carol and saying, Tom Brady? So where it came from. Now, for quite a long time, there was a parallel use indicating the same family restructure, not just step. Charles Dickens in David Copperfield presents David's mother as a widow, mm. but when she remarries, her new husband, Mr. Murdstone, is referred to as David's father-in-law, which actually makes more sense because he's married to his mother, so he is legally Mr. So-and-so, father by law of her child. Ha! Huh. Now, that story was published 1850, but um, Dickens quite often said his stories in an earlier year, so the story could possibly have been in the 1800s that he was writing about, when the term in law appears to have been in use in parallel with step. But it was also used, and still is, to indicate someone two generations older. Father-in-law. Father-in-law now means what? Your spouse's father. father. Yes, so it's one generation up. That's and, funny though, isn't it? There's nothing, not much legal about it. No, but it gets, gets worse. <laughs> and father-in-law or mother-in-law seems to have gradually evolved in the way that it's used now to describe the relatives of someone who was married into the family so you have sister-in-law, father-in-law, but the evolution isn't always logical. Even now, your mother's mother is called a... Grandmother. A grandmother, two generations above you. But her sister, who is also two generations above you, is called your great-aunt. Oh, yeah, I always get confused with never this. I've never heard anyone use the word grandma. It's far more uh, indicative to what you mean is to say my grandmother's brother would yes. be my... Th that tells you yes. what's going on better than granduncle or great-uncle or... Well, you won't hear granduncle... Well, I'd better rephrase that. I haven't heard granduncle or grandaunt, I don't think, for a very long time, but I do occasionally hear great-uncle or yeah. great-aunt, yeah. although their brother or sister would be the grandmother. So you've got both terms side by side for the same generation. It's too confusing. We should stop it now, Max. It's not... You can't stop it. What would we both doing here if we could just stop language changing? Now, evolution of language takes a long time, so it may take a while to recognise a word arises which describes a new partner coming into an unmarried relationship with someone who wasn't married to the previous partner. Did you follow that? Yeah. If two people are living together in this year, and they're not married, but they're partners, and then for some reason they break up or one dies or one goes overseas or whatever, the new person coming in can hardly be called a step-something because it doesn't rely on anyone dying. And that's what's... Oh, right. That, yeah. Are there any relatives to the step regarding bereavement? Not that I know of, but that, that is the origin of the word being used to indicate okay. a bereavement has caused the situation. Yeah, well, obviously it came about when it was rather frowned upon to um, have another partner for any reason other than bereavement. Well, th there will be new terms arise. You burn in hell if you get divorced. Is that so? Yeah. Oh, who told you? Jesus. Oh, well, I didn't know him. You knew him. But for new terms associated with fairly, fairly new relationships, 
unmarried partnerships with children, the status of the children, or same-sex partnerships, which legally are married, there will be terms to evolve. It can take a long time, so if you and I, Graham, are still sitting here in 20 years' time, mm. we might know these new terms, but they don't exist just yet. Yeah, we're going to need some, I think. They'll have to evolve organically. Well, no-one seems to feel the need, you know, when two people of the same sex are married legally, but each is referred to as the wife or the husband, yeah. and that's fairly due, but it's just... That's it is, handy. It's just filtered into use quite easily. Mm. Spouse. Maybe that's one for your inbox next week, Matt. It's <laughs> a weird-sounding thing, isn't it? Spouse. Okay, I'll do spouse next week. Let's not talk I'm about it. I'm making a note. Spouse, Max, spouse, <laughs> ask. All right, we'll take a break. And when we return, answering more of your questions about words, origin and meaning, and one actually relevant to this week's affairs, if anyone remembers what Guy Fawkes is commemorated for in the first place. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. OK, Max is here answering your questions about words, their origin and meaning. Ask away, use the email form on the webpage or you can ask on Facebook pretty much anywhere. I'll pass it along. I see those things and... Also, if you want to write in, that's fine. P.O. Box 8880, Simon Street, Auckland. God, I hope that address is right, because otherwise it'll be a huge big basket full of um, uh, um, correspondence that we might not have seen. I just rely on you, Graham. Oh, thanks. All right. Don't know whether that's going to be helpful. <laughs> now, Guy Fawkes this week... Um, the commemoration, the reasons for it, is kind of fading into history. It's still called Guy Fawkes, though. Um, and the origin of the word Guy, Max. Well, let's have a go at it. And you'll find straight away that there are two unrelated words, Guy, used in English. The word Guy has two, two different ancestries. One is from Old French, and that refers to something like a rope which directs or holds something. It is a guide a guide, which in English became a guy rope. Oh. And that's still very frequently used. Now, that has absolutely no connection at all with the other word guy, meaning a bloke, an ordinary man. And the origin of that dates back to someone who was not at all ordinary, and Guy wasn't actually his name. This famous gunpowder plot of 1605 was foiled before the explosion, and the result before the explosion, so the fire never took place. And the organiser was arrested, imprisoned and tortured, and his name was Guido Fawkes. That was his real name, and that is the name on his arrest documents. He was sentenced to be, quote, drawn and quartered, meaning to be agonisingly cut open, the body divided into four parts, and then hung. But he actually avoided that death by... That slow death by jumping unexpectedly from the gallows and dying instantly with a broken neck because he had they the, cut him up anyway. He had the um, rope around him. Oh. So yes, as you so rightly say, they cut him up anyway. The rest of the sentence was carried out. His head was cut off and stuck on a pole. His body was divided into four, and the segments were sent out to various places to be displayed on poles and let people know that attempting to blow up the king was not a good idea if you wish to remain in one piece. Now, curiously, over the next 200 years, and it's never been quite certain why, people began creating bonfires on November the 5th 
presumably to remind themselves not to try burning Parliament and the King. It is peculiar. It, it, most it, peculiar because the fire never happened. No, I can't think of another um, commemoration, celebration, event, festival, feast that um, is based on something that didn't happen. Well, it didn't happen, but there's another very, very fragile suggestion from a scholar somewhere along the line that it was a time of year when the rubbish had to be burned and it was sort of convenient. In, That's every time of the year, isn't in, it? You well, can... yes, I know, but someone's put forward it's that as sort weak. of rather fragile. Who is that person? Because as you Let's say... Let's go visit them and beat them up. The fire... Of, of the Houses of Parliament never did happen. No. So it's most peculiar than, than something else didn't happen. Oh, so uh, some uh, young cad this week, when I mentioned this to him, uh, Ryan Bridge, actually, he, he said, oh, Easter. What about Easter? He said, <laughs> Jesus' resurrection. <laughs> Commemorating something that didn't happen. Well, I mean, it just means he doesn't believe the New Testament. Yes, yeah, that's, that's well, right. That's why I said many other young cad. Many other religions don't. No. Now, um, there was no real reason why uh, these burning bonfires began, nor was it really explainable why they put this tawdry effigy on top of the fire in order to represent the now deceased Guido Fawkes, um, who was put to death, so he was being burnt to death by the locals on their bonfires. Now, the... The, Couldn't uh, find a witch. The figure of him was roughly made out of whatever was at hand, and these effigies of a bloke on top of a bonfire were never very spectacular, although it was representing a man who was British. British people have never been very faithful about foreign names. They don't... They're very sort of... Um, prepare the English language to any other, and so they stopped referring to him as Guido mm. and just narrowed it down to... Guy. And because the effigies on top of the bonfires were not, and still aren't, very elegantly presented, the word guy began to be used to describe a man of grotesque appearance, badly dressed. But the word drifted to America, and there it was modified into referring to just ordinary fellows. And that's how it stayed. Either as singular or plural, it's virtually the same reference as the word bloke, although the ancestry is A a lazy way of saying Guido, and B, an extremely gruesome image which is modified into meaning just you and me. So when we say the word Guy Fawkes, there it is. That's the origin of when we say that guy over there. Yes. Some guy came around. Yes, some guy came. Door. That's the, because that, that directly connected. It was an English, dare we use the word, bastardization of the name Guido. Yeah. I oh, didn't well, want to say Guido. Well, his, his Things get changed to, the, to, to match the music of your language. That's why we don't say München, we say <laughs> Munich. We say Paris instead of Paris. Oh, no, those are called endonyms and exonyms. Those are quite common. The name used by the internal, by the people who live there, yeah. and the name used by people... See, they call New, New Zealand Nouvelle Zélande. Should, we, should we? How dare <laughs> I am assaulted. I am offended. Oh, and outrage. people here talking about... No one ever here ever talks about going to Gilly Label. No. They say Gallipoli, which is not its name. Yeah. So, um, there we've... The Turks got, have never forgiven us. I don't think the Turks... I think they're more gracious about it. I think they agree. Mm. I mean, the Turks actually did... They, well, they invented Santa Claus, didn't they? Santa Claus is Turkish. They hosted him, yeah. Are we moving on to our next thing now? We've done Guy Fawkes. Sorry? Did you let off any crackers? 
No, I didn't observe. I heard Guy Fawkes happening mm. outside in the windows, mm. and I saw things going into the sky. But I think I was in the middle of writing the script and saying to myself, you know, why do people do it, and where did it come from, and what is the name? May I add another theory to the, it's from history, reputable history, that may have made Guy Fawkes stick a bit better. When, uh, was it James II? Yeah, I think, James II. He was getting all very Catholic-y and people didn't like it in Britain, or at least the authorities didn't. And then, so, he ran away and they invited William of Orange to come and take over and he entered with his navy. Not a shot was fired. They rolled out an orange carpet for him and he said, thank you very much, I'm the King of England. And they said, yes, good one. And that happened on November the 5th. So it was another mm. Protestant v Catholic thing on November the 5th. And his birthday, William of Orange's birthday, um, November the 4th as well. So these kind of things can, can congeal to cement something into commemoration. And you let the phrase William of Orange roll off your tongue without comment that Orange is a rather odd name for a king. Yeah, Orange, isn't that? Yeah, the, something the, like that. The Dutch thing, but I'm saying Orange. All right. It's better than the, uh, they were going to go for William of Mandarin, but nah. No, no, didn't want nah. to. William of Pomegranate. All right. Uh, <laughs> why does someone say something's brand new when it's brand new? It's, this is really, fa I was fascinated with this because I didn't know until the question came in. And it really is so obvious when you do know, so let's go. The word brand drifted into, drifted into English in the 1500s. Now, at that time and before, the words ancestors had relatives in Scandinavia and Germany, all related back to the ancient European word guerra, meaning to heat which diverged into various versions such as brandas, brond, and brant, meaning heat or fire. Now, the word settled into English as brond, and over a hundred years it modified into brand, meaning flame, burning wood, flaming torch, destruction by fire, and it was necessary then and still now for agricultural cattle and other animals to be identified to show ownership. And the method of this was to mark them with a red-hot implement to give a shape or sign which belonged to that owner and no other. Ow! And that became known as a brand because it was done with heated metal. Mm. So cowboy and Indian movies, eh, in the, in the westerns. Gosh, every time it was on, I went, oh, that must smart. That's awful. Yes, it is awful. Now, during the 1800s, the word's reference widened to include other produce, not just cattle, not just cattle being identified by a particular sign, but other things identified by a symbol, which identified who had produced the goods. They were branded. And that system was well in place by 1850, and it, round about then it became a matter of legality, so that ownership of a manufacturing idea or product was guarded fiercely and legally. For instance, nobody but its owners can use the words Coca-Cola. That is a brand. So saying something is brand new actually used to mean that the new product had just emerged, had just had its own name invented and branded onto it, though nowadays not with a hot iron. Um, there's also a parallel story which is not to, be, not to be credited, but it does exist. Some people think that brand new is replaced or replaceable by brand new, 
And the explanations are that, number one, the saying arose from the practice of backing, packing delicate goods into bran when being transported from one place to another. Like turn it so up. So they arrived in good conditions. Did I hear you say turn it up? Yeah, Exactly on. so. Yes, that doesn't oh, work at all. Oh, dear Marjorie. Or explanation number two, that people saying brand new had lazy pronunciation and just didn't pronounce the Yeah, D. I'm going the latter. That's the one, yes, so yeah. do I. Uh, an interesting thing, Bradman. The word Bradman can't be used in marketing in Australia. There's a law against it. That that intrigues me that you can um, you can legalise a surname. Mm, yeah, I suppose you that's must possible. not use it in branding. Well, only last week we we spoke about the international um, rules regarding the word champagne. Yeah, which yeah. Is, which is a district. It's not a person's name. It's a district. Yeah, yeah. But so I think it's interesting the Australians uh, the, the depth of their feeling and passion for not only cricket but the feats of Don Bradman, yeah. that it is that revered, uh, that no, any, you must not use it. I wonder if there are any rugby players with a uh, copyright name. Don't think so. No, I don't know of any. Yeah, hard to copyright the goings. Yes. So many of them. Is that so? Yeah, they're all <laughs> over the place. Okay, now, this is a perennial classic, but it's always worth being uh, addressed. Scotland Yard, the uh, location the name, the brand name, of the police force in Britain, in England, anyway. It isn't in Scotland. Why is it called Scotland Yard? And there's a new one, too, that spins around. New Scotland Yard. New Scotland Yard. Yes. It's a triangular sculpture. It well, spins around. It says New Scotland Yard. Then you see another face, and it says New Scotland Yard again. Well, that's part of the story. Okay. Because up to the time of Queen Elizabeth I, England and Scotland were two different countries, and each had their own monarch. But Elizabeth I, who was Henry VIII's daughter, she had no children and there were no other legitimate Tudor anybodies in England. So the throne of England was offered to the King James of Scotland, who had one-eighth of royal Tudor blood. His great-grandmother was Henry VIII's aunt. Margaret. And it's so important in terms of royal succession that the person has the right kind of blood. So he had um, one-eighth of Tudor blood. So the position of monarch of England and Scotland was resolved into one person and has remained ever since. But before that, when there were kings and queens of Scotland and England, sometimes the monarchs and often ambassadors travelled between the two countries. And when dignitaries from Scotland came to visit London, they stayed at a sort of power in one part of London uh, and the square where these people stayed became known as Great Scotland Yard because when those people were in London that's where they would be. Now after 1603 when Elizabeth I died there were no longer kings or queens coming down from Scotland to London because there weren't any but the name of the city square stuck Great Scotland Yard and over 200 years after that when the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police were established, 1829 in Whitehall, the entrance, just the entrance of the police establishment opened into Great Scotland Yard. So gradually the name of that city square, Great Scotland Yard, was shortened to Scotland Yard and that became shorthand again of meaning the police. And then Scotland Yard again was shortened again, so in London if you just say the yard people oh. know what you mean or the old bill in 1890 the police administration shifted to another address and that was called new scotland yard Never. 
and in 1967 New Scotland Yard also shifted but the name has remained in the suburb where the Scottish kings came to stay in the 1500s. Until one came to stay forever and that was James I, 6th of Scotland. Right, so there was no need for the Scotland Yard because he was England and Scotland. Yeah. Right, right. There were no more ambassadors or royals from Scotland right. coming down to see the king. Right. Uh, because the the king became the king of both countries yeah. and still has. I think Bonnie Prince, Prince Charlie might, might have been a bit of an ambassador of a, to, of a type, wasn't he? Well, that's for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> now, November the 10th, we're two days... Nearly made it to London. Who did? The Scottish invasion, the later one. They got down to Derby and then I think they just gave up. I don't know. Well, I still think one has to be careful. They lost in the semi-finals in a uh, penalty shootout. I still find it necessary when I'm with people to remember that Scotland and England are still two separate countries. Mm. You dare not say anything in Scotland uh, which might indicate that it isn't its own country. Mm. Now, November the 10th is two days away from a fairly bizarre anniversary. Um, something which has become a major unconventional activity in New Zealand. The day after tomorrow, Monday the 12th, is the 30th anniversary of the world's first ever commercial bungee jump. It was a man called A.J. Haggart who learned about the men of Pentecost Islands who had a ceremony believed to encourage a good crop in the forthcoming yam season. And to do this, they tied vines to their ankles and jumped off a 35-metre-high wooden tower. Now, instead of vines, Hackett organised a close study of the strength of rubber, and he discovered that a single strand of rubber, when stretched to six times its length, would snap. But if it was stretched only to four times its length, it was only using 15% of its breaking strain. Having demonstrated that this was true, and jumping off things in various parts of the world, including the Eiffel Tower, Hackett approached the New Zealand Department of Conservation about organising jumps off the Kawarau Bridge. And when the formalities were completed, the first commercial jump took place on November the 12th, 1988, when 28 people paid $75 each to jump off the 43-high bridge with a bungee cord attached to their ankles. Now... Nowadays, according to one source, 100 people a day buckle up, take a deep breath and jump. Max, are you sick of my stories? <laughs> Tell me. This won't take long. It's a reflection of how financially astute I am. And that I flattered with a bloke who was best mates with A.J. Hackett when A.J. Hackett was a carpenter. A.J. used to come round. We'd have beers and watch radio with pictures and things like that. And then he came around and he says, I've got this idea. I've got this big rubber thing. Have a look at it in the back of the van. We're going to jump off Greenhithe Bridge. And they did this for a while. I, d- I didn't join in. He said, I reckon this is going to take off. This is going to be a big thing. Do you want to be in? And I said, no one's going to want to do this, mate. <laughs> no, it's this is going nowhere. And so I didn't buy into the idea of bungee jumping when well, I had the opportunity. I had the vision that it was going nowhere when it was precisely going everywhere. Well, you see, your listeners and I are gratified that you didn't, Graham, because it means that we still have you with us. Oh, no, I could just be collecting checks. <laughs> I <laughs> well, don't know how it works, whatever. Anyway, well, it was interesting to be there at the Genesis. Well, Stephen Fry gave its best commercial ever when he announced on international television that he had done one jump, bungee jump down at the Kawara Bridge, mm. and he said, when I came back up, the only thing I've ever wanted to do in my life from that moment on is to just do it again. Yeah, yeah.
fabulous fun. Have you bungee jumped, Max? No. Oh, let's go now. <laughs> it's a long way. Come away. on. I've got a cut, mate. He's a carpenter. He's got this rubber thing at the back of, in the back of the ute. We'll tie tie you up. We can't turn the clock back, Graham. Oh. Never too old, never too late. Okay, very good. Max, thank you so much. <laughs>